Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a sermon series called The Life of Christ, a study in the Gospel of Luke. In this series, we're spending time with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. Thanks for joining us. Now the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were muttering, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them? And then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you owns a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Would he not leave the other 99 in open country and go and search until he finds the lost one? And when he finds him, throw him joyfully over his shoulders and go home and call his neighbors and friends and say, come rejoice with me for my lost sheep has been found. I tell you, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who don't need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search everywhere until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger one, he gathered all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Once he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. And he began to be in need. So he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Once he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? But here I am starving to death. I will set out. And go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to him, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to the father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine who was dead is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older brother was out in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry, refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. 
But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed an order. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you're always with me, and everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Well, some of you as families probably have stories that go down in family lore, and I'm going to share one of ours, uh, the Patsia family here. I was what was known as a pretty active child around the age of two or three. I think that's a kind way to put it. And I had an unbelievable gift at climbing things. Like even at two and three, I could, I could climb unbelievable things. One thing is I would somehow scale the swing set in our backyard, and I would learn how to climb over our six-foot-tall picket fence, which would drop me down on the other side of one of the busiest streets in Vancouver, Canada, which is where I grew up. And so oftentimes my parents might find me wandering the streets with just my diaper on. Uh, I don't know what I was doing, checking it out, I guess. <laughs> One particular story, though, stands out, which is, uh, you know, my mom put me down for a nap in my crib one day, and this wasn't a crib, which is one gate. Because I was such a good climber, they actually had to put two gates on this thing, but even that didn't stop me. So about 10 minutes after she had put me down, she went back into the room to check on me, and I was nowhere to be found. So she called all the usual suspects. We lived right next door to the church. My dad was a pastor, and that's where I would normally uh, go. So she called my dad. Is, is Steve over there? No. She started calling some of the other friends uh, around that area. Nobody had seen me anywhere. My understanding of the story is that it got so concerning, they even called the police at one point. I was lost and nowhere to be found. Well, this morning we're looking at one of the greatest chapters in the entire Bible, a chapter that's all about being lost and found. Now, for the sake of time this morning, we're really going to focus on that third story, that third parable. Classically, it's been called the parable of the prodigal son. And Charles Dickens, one of the great English authors of all times, described this story this way. It is the finest short story ever written. And I tend to agree with that. Part of the reason for that is what makes it such a great story is, in my opinion, it answers the most important question that we could ask as human beings. Some people think the most important question you could ask is, do you believe in God? I believe there's actually a question that's even more fundamental and important to that, and this story addresses it. If you're following on your notes this morning, the question is, what kind of God do you believe in? It's not just do you believe in God, but what kind of God do you believe in? There's been hundreds of attempts to try and describe who God is throughout history. That's why we have so many different religions. Uh, people have even discarded the whole idea that there is a God. But according to the Christian faith, instead of just describing who God is for us, what we believe is that God sent Jesus to show us. God didn't just tell us words about himself. He actually sent a representative. He sent his son, God in the flesh, so that we could see firsthand exactly what kind of God our God is. We've talked about it this way in our series in Luke called The Life of Christ, right? We want to look at the words of Jesus 
They're important. They're extremely important. We want to look at the works of Jesus, you know, some of the things that he did. But one of the things we're paying particular attention to as a church is the way of Jesus, the way he related to other people, the way he lived his life. And the reason we want to do that is because we want to understand who God is better. And as we understand God better, we can understand ourselves better. And this story, in my opinion, shows us the way of God more clearly than any other story in Scripture. So if you haven't already, take your Bible and turn to Luke 15. We're going to be starting in verse 11. And as we say every week, we always have some Bibles available and a seat underneath, uh, maybe right in front of you or somewhere around there. And you can find Luke 15 on page 730. You're really going to want to follow along in this incredible story, so I encourage you to grab one of those. Now, let me just remind us of why Jesus even told these parables. Let's set the scene in case you missed it in the very beginning as they did that reading. We know that Jesus told these parables because of the very first two verses in Luke 15, which say, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners. And eats with them. Now, in this series we've been doing in Luke, we've run across these characters called the Pharisees several times, right? We've learned, if you've been here, that these Pharisees were a part of the, you know, the religious elite. They had kind of separated themselves from the rest of society in order to maintain what they believed was a holy life. They knew the kind of God that God was. And what that meant is separating themselves from everybody else. The problem comes when Jesus comes on the scene. And he starts making these audacious claims about God. In fact, he would say things like, I and the Father are one. Or I only do what I see my Father doing. Well, this bugged the Pharisees because what they saw in Jesus didn't match up with what they knew about their God. It didn't line up. There's no way, as we specifically see in this story, that God would hang out with the kind of people Jesus hung out with here. Tax collectors? Are you kidding me? Sinners? No, 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 no. The God they knew looked for good people. He looked for obedient people, not lost people. Well, Jesus hears their complaint and decides once and for all in the rest of Luke 15 to explain who God really is. And what his heart is for his people. Even lost people. Like the tax collectors and sinners. And get this. Even lost people like the Pharisees. And so let's look at this parable starting in verse 11. We are really uncovering one of the greatest treasures that we have as believers. And I just want to unpack it kind of verse by verse together. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Now let's just pause here for a moment. In Jesus' day, what the son just asked of his father would have been considered one of the most evil things that you could have done. If you're following on your notes, by asking for his share of the inheritance, the son was basically saying to the father, I wish you were dead. You are not dead quickly enough, old man. Give me my money. I'm tired of waiting. I kid you not, the people in Jesus' audience would have gasped at that. I can't believe he just said that. 
They would have expected the father to severely scold and reprimand his son. But look what happened. So the father divided his property between them. The father actually does what the son asks. Now understand, again, we can't understand the magnitude of this. This means that he had to sell a portion of his family property to come up with the kind of money that his son was asking for. This is unheard of. Well, maybe the son has a good reason. Maybe he's in need and he has a good reason for this money. Verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set out for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Oh, he took this costly gift and threw it away for fleeting pleasure. I read again this week that we just cannot grasp the magnitude of this as Gentiles. The Gentiles, anybody who's not, so that's pretty much everyone in our room. Anyone who's not Jewish, right? We cannot grasp the magnitude, the evil of this. It's like Jesus has taken everything that is noble in the Jewish mindset, and he's drug it right through the dirt. This boy has sold his heritage for money. He has rejected his father, he's rejected his God, and he has rejected his nation. Also, he could get in his new convertible and drive to Las Vegas. Honestly, at this point in the story, everyone listening to Jesus wants this boy to get his. You know what I'm talking about? They hope he gets his. He has dragged everything and everyone through the dirt. He deserves punishment. Look at verse 14. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country. Literally there, the Greek uh, says he glued himself to a Gentile as that Gentile's servant, which was a huge disgrace for any Jewish man. It can't get any worse than that. Oh, but it can. Who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. An unspeakable degradation for a Jew. A Jewish pig herder. Have you ever heard of such a thing? That is not kosher, friends. Surely it can't get any worse. Oh, but it does. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. He's broke, he's humiliated, he's crushed, he's alone, and all of the religious people in the audience listening to Jesus would be going, yes. He's getting exactly what he deserves. Justice has been served. Now, let's just be honest here for a moment. Isn't there something inside of every single one of our hearts that does the same thing? We demand justice Why is it that every single Disney movie you've ever watched, there's like the good guy or the good gal and the bad guy and the bad gal, and if it does not end with the bad guy or the bad girl getting his or hers, we will leave totally unsatisfied. What a horrible movie that was. The bad guys never are supposed to win. Well, he's a bad guy. Now, I want us to pause here and just recognize something very important about this parable that Jesus is teaching us here. In case you haven't caught it, one of the most important lessons of this whole parable is that Jesus wants to teach us about the effects of sin. Now, I've shared this before. Maybe maybe you haven't heard this yet, but I believe there's a difference in Scripture between what is called sin and what are sins. Oftentimes, when I hear the word sin, I think of all the bad things that I do. 
But actually, those bad things are simply the result of who I am. I have a sin nature. I am born a sinner. And because I'm born that way, I do those bad things. And at its core, sin, not sin, sin is simply turning my back on God. Wanting to live life my own way like this son does. And if you're following, sin promises freedom, but it only brings slavery. Sin promises freedom, but it only brings slavery. Jesus said this exact same thing in John 8, 34. Would you read it on the screen with me? It says, Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Well, who sins? Everybody. So that means we're all a slave to sin. And this boy learned firsthand the effect of sin. Sin never delivers on what it promises. Sin never delivers on what it promises. Sin promises freedom, but only brings slavery. I'm going to guess almost all of us in this room have learned that at some point in our lives. Again, when I was younger, I learned this lesson early on. I was a chronic liar. Part of the reason for that is I would embellish stories in order to get some attention just because of the things that were you know, going on in my life. I was hurting, to be honest with you. But I would create these embellished stories, and I recognized very early on at a young age in my life that it didn't bring the kind of happiness and joy and freedom that I thought it would bring. It actually brought a burden. It brought guilt. It brought shame. I couldn't remember who I had told what, and so I had to keep these stories going and going and going, far from bringing me freedom. It actually brought me slavery. Who of us have not tried to find freedom or happiness apart from God, but instead have only found slavery? It started with Eve in the garden. And it continues in my life still today. But look at what happens next, starting in verse 17. This is such an important text. In fact, this is one of the most amazing treatments of the salvation process you will ever find in your Bible. Verse 17 says, When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. That statement, he came to his senses, may be one of the most beautiful things written. In the word of God. Because it describes the first step in returning home to the Father. It's called repentance. Repentance literally means a change of mind about sin. A change of mind. Changing my mind that sin is where I will find freedom. Changing my mind about that and understanding that I'm only going to find slavery. Repentance literally means changing my mind, coming to my senses that life apart from God, it's not all it's cracked up to be. If you're following, the Son is a picture of returning to God through repentance. Now I want you to watch how this works because there's a lot of confusion, I think, about what repentance is. Here's this Son. No one's giving him anything. Nobody loved him. He's broken physically, morally, spiritually. He's hit the bottom. And what's his first thought when he hits the bottom? Father. Father. Home. Home. He's driven by images of home, memories. He longs to be with his father. He'd forgotten much, but he had not forgotten how much his father loved him. And so God 
opens his eyes at the lowest point in his life. Been there? He opens his eyes and he comes to his senses about his sin. Well, let's just pause here. Isn't that the same story that has been told millions of times around the world? It's my story. It's many of your story. You come to the point where you realize life apart from God is not all happiness and freedom. It's actually leading me more into slavery, and so we, by God's grace, hit the bottom. Sometimes it takes hitting the bottom for us to come to our senses. Pascal said, we all have this God-shaped vacuum in our heart. That's what's going on there, right? It's this pull towards home, this pull towards the Father. We leave home, head to the far country. We expect to find freedom, but only find slavery. But by his grace, we hit bottom. And we come to our senses, and that is the beginning of our return home to the Father. But as we see in the story, just coming to my senses about my sin is not enough. Read, the first, read verses 18 through verse 20 on your notes there with me. It says, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. Once we come to our senses, the second step of coming back to the father in repentance is an honest confession of our sin. We have to feel what God, or what Paul calls godly sorrow for sin and its effects in our lives and in the lives of those close to us. Repentance, in other words, involves emotion. It involves emotion. This boy felt honest, deep, heartfelt pain about what he did. If you want the most vivid picture of a, of a person whose heart was just filled with godly sorrow, read, read Psalm 51 this week. Read David's prayer of confession, and you'll understand this part of repentance. But even that's not full repentance. You see, repentance also involves our will. Did you see the actions this son took? I will arise, it says. I will go. I will say. So he got up and he went to his father. He made a choice that I'm not just going to feel bad about my sin and confess it to God, which is what I like to do. That's where I like to stop. Well, God, I'm really, I feel really sorry for the way I spoke to my wife there. We good? That's not how repentance works. He actually got up and he sought out the person whom he had harmed, who he had hurt. That's because if you're on your notes, repentance involves our mind, changing our mind, emotions, godly sorrow, and our will. Verse 19 is really important. It's kind of sandwiched in what I had you read there because I think we can read that and think, oh, this son, he's just kind of being falsely humble there by asking his dad to become a hired servant. I mean, he's just sort of degrading himself because he knows really that the father's going to welcome him. I mean, he's still his son, right? Friends, the reality is his statement is actually a correct assessment of who he now is. According to the law, he can't be his father's son anymore. He's lost that privilege. He has renounced his father, his God, and his nation. And the most he can do is ask his father not to carry out what Deuteronomy 21 says to do with a rebellious son, which has put him to death. This son deserves death, and he knows it. He is simply asking 
that his father would be merciful and not take his life, that he could just come back as a slave. He has no rights at all. Don't miss it. Once again, this is the picture of who every single one of us in this room are. Though it's not a popular picture today, is it? It is the message of all of the Bible. We are all slaves to sin. We are rebellious sons and daughters with no rights at all before God. And what do we deserve? We deserve justice. We deserve to be held to account. We deserve death. And that's exactly what the religious people listening to this would be expecting this father to do. I found something interesting this week. There was actually, scholars have discovered that there was a similar story to the one Jesus tells here uh, among the Jewish rabbis of this time that existed many years before Jesus actually told the story. But in the earlier version of this story, the younger son runs away, spends all his father's money, and when he comes crawling back home, the father actually rejects him. And so perhaps, as this audience is listening to Jesus tell this story, the Pharisees and and, uh, teachers of the law are thinking, yes, I've heard this one before. This has got a good ending. Make sure you catch this. One day, the father saw his son returning. He waited with arms crossed. The broken down son begged his father to take him back. But the father looked away from him and said, forget it. You've had your chance. You've made your bed. Now lie in it. In the original story, the father turns his son away, which is exactly what his son deserved. That's that's how the God they knew would respond. That's how the God they knew would respond. But look at what happens. Jesus, like he often does, he loves adding a little surprise twist, doesn't he? He loves turning our worlds upside down. So he gives us a true picture of who God is and how he feels towards us. Would you read verse 20 out loud with me on your notes there? It says, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Of all the pictures that Jesus could give us to describe the kind of God God is, this is the one he chooses. It's the same message as in the other two parables. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. I like to imagine this story taking place, right? Do you have an imagination for this? Just picture the father. Don't you think every day since his son had been God, he'd been worried sick? Don't you think he wakes up every morning wondering where he is? Is he safe? Is he okay? Is he hurt? Does he need my help? Don't you think every day he stands out on the front porch or whatever it is they had, and he's looking at down the road going, man, I hope he comes home. Is today the day? And then one day he sees this person dressed in rags dragging along the road, and his first thought is, no, that can't be him. My son, he dresses in fine clothes. After all, isn't that why he wanted the inheritance in the first place? But then he recognizes something familiar about the way he's walking. It's my son. It's my son. In a flash, he realizes it's his son, and he's filled with, do you see the word there? Compassion. That word compassion in the Greek means he shook with his whole body. 
like an involuntary, like just compassion. It's the same word that is often used of Jesus when he comes across broken people and hurting people and lost people. And then the father does one of the most amazing things recorded in scripture. He actually jumps the stone fence of their yard and sprints out to meet his son on the road. What makes that so amazing? Well, no Jewish man would do that. No Jewish man would run because running would require him to have taken his tunic, lifted it up, tucked it underneath his belt, which would have exposed his legs, which was unspeakable shame in Jewish culture. But get this. The father is willing to take the son's shame upon himself. Does that sound familiar? The father does not treat him like society would demand or the law would demand or let's be honest how you and I demand. It says he embraced him and he kissed him. That can't have been a pleasant experience. He had been sleeping with pigs. This boy smelled. But get this, the father is taking his son's stench upon himself. Does that sound familiar? Friends, don't miss the whole point of this parable. If you're on your notes, this parable reveals the heart of God towards us. What kind of God is he? Well, this is the kind of God he is. And Jesus' message is that the God, the Father, the creator of the universe, will welcome you home in the very same way, with arms open wide. God runs out to meet us when we turn to meet him. I don't know what else to say other than quote John, 1 John 3, 1 here. Maybe we could say this with a little bit of joy. Can you read it with me? See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Some of you have drifted out of fellowship with God. You've walked away from the presence of your heavenly Father, and you wonder, is this story really about me? Could he ever actually welcome me home? I mean, he knows what I did. He's scanning the horizon every day, looking for you to return to him. It's called grace. In verse 21, the boy recites his confession. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But he gets cut off. He doesn't even get to finish his whole little speech about becoming a hired servant. I love that. The father bursts in and says, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. No boy of mine is going to be treated like some hired servant. In my mercy and grace, I will give you sonship again. That is what all those gifts represent, by the way, right? It's the family robe, the family ring. He's, no son's going to walk around barefoot in his house. What do all those gifts represent? Well, they represent a restoration for this boy to full status of son. And by the way, we learn in our series in Ephesians, if you were here, that that's exactly what Christ does for every person who receives him by faith. Full status Sonship. Friends, that's the greatest picture 
of salvation in the entire Bible, in my opinion. It is the gospel in story form. It is the story of a God who rushes out to meet sinners and take our sin upon himself, to take our stench upon himself, to take our shame upon himself. It's the story of a father who showers unbelievable gifts upon his children. Salvation, adoption, a place in his home, an inheritance that is eternal. Somebody once wrote a song, I think it's called Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Once Abraham Lincoln was asked how he was going to treat the rebellious Southerners when they had finally been defeated and returned to the Union. The questioner expected Lincoln would take some sort of vengeance, but instead he answered, I will treat them as if they had never been away. I love that. That's God's heart for us. We've all gone our own way. We've been rebellious, but I will treat you as if you've never been away. I will restore unto you your status as son. I read a story, another story this week about a young man who was basically the description of the prodigal son. He had hurt his parents badly. He had stolen money from them in order to live the high life. And he discovered, as many people have, that living the high life isn't such a great thing all the time. And so he came to the bottom by God's grace. Sometimes we got to pray for people to hit the bottom, right? Because that's the only place where they will meet God. He came to the bottom and he wrote his parents a letter and he said, I'd love to come back home and see you, but I understand if you don't want to see me anymore. I realize what I've done is incredibly harmful. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the train. This train would pass by their backyard. And if you want to see me, why don't you put a yellow ribbon in the tree in our backyard and I'll look for it and then I'll know if you want to see me or not. So he gets on the train at the time. He told his parents he would. He's sitting next to this guy, and he tells the guy, because he just can't look up. He's too nervous at this point, right? He says, I don't, what will happen if my parents reject me? So he says, hey, can you just do me a favor? When we get by that tree, can you just look if there's a yellow ribbon anywhere on there? And he says, yeah, sure, man. So they get to the tree, and the guy says, hey, you're going to want to look at this. And so he kind of slowly lifts up his head, and he sees a tree full of yellow ribbons. Maybe you've wandered away from God. Have you wondered how he will receive you? There is a tree full of yellow ribbons waiting for you. I will treat you as if you've never been away. Do you understand, friends, why we call this good news? Now, I wish I could stop there. I really do. Like, wouldn't it be great if we could just stop now and sing Amazing Grace and go home and all be (laughs) celebrating and happy? Well, the story goes on. You see, there's another son, an older brother. And as we'll see if you're on your notes, the older son is just as lost as his younger brother. The older son is just as lost as his younger brother. You can be lost in the pigsty, as someone said, and you can be lost in the pews. Look at verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? Well, your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. This son is out working in the fields for his father. He's doing what he's supposed to do. He's an obedient child. 
But then on his way home, he hears the DJ bumping. He's like, wait a minute, what is that noise? He calls a person out to him. He's like, what's happening? Well, your younger brother's made it home. And what's his response? The older brother, verse 28, became angry. It is the word used for rage. And refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. He becomes angry because even though he has worked for the father his whole life, he does not know him. Even though he has lived in his father's house, he does not share his heart. So don't miss this. Much like he does with the younger son, the father goes out to meet this son. He goes out to meet him. Because he knows this boy is just as far away from home as his brother was. So look at verse 29. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. How does he describe himself as a son? As a slave. And never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. I have been perfectly righteous according to the law. I've lived a life according to the book for you. I've worked for you. I've done my duty, and you haven't even given me a stinking old goat to have a barbecue with my buddies. Friends, I used to sympathize with this older brother because sometimes I'm just like him. But what we need to understand is that he doesn't love his father. He serves his father out of duty, not relationship. He feels like he deserves to be treated better than anybody else, especially than all those lowlifes like his brother. What the older brother is saying to the father here reveals that his expectation of life is that justice should reign, not mercy. His whole worldview is if I do these things for you, You, in turn, are obligated to do these things for me. That's his worldview. That is a great definition of religion right there, yeah? Something we so easily can trap ourselves into. God, if I do these things, if I read my Bible, if I pray enough, if I do whatever it is, then you're obligated to do these things for me. That was this son's worldview. A religious person gets angry then, When they see God's mercy, his love, his grace poured out on people who don't deserve it. Heard a story of a young man who was sharing in front of his church the amazing news that his dad, who was a a drunk and had abused him his whole life, he went to him on his deathbed and he received Christ into his heart. So he was rejoicing with the church about this. But there was another guy in that service who was really bothered by that. His thought was, this guy gets into heaven. He gets the same thing I get, even though I've spent my whole life serving God. That isn't fair. You know what that guy is? He's a Pharisee. Just like I am. At times. But the scary thing is, he doesn't realize he's just as lost as his younger brother. Look at verse 30. 
But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? I love that. This son of yours, I'm not even going to dignify him as my brother anymore. And then he names all the things that he's done wrong, right? If you have kids, more than one kid, you know this tactic right here. The older son is at a place where it's like, this isn't fair. And you know what? It isn't. It isn't fair. The prodigal son does not get what he deserves, but he has missed something his whole life living with his father. He doesn't get what he deserves either. He has never gotten what he deserves either. Friends, the older brother is a warning to us. If you're on your notes, he's a slave just as much as his younger brother. But he's a slave to self-righteous religion. And he has no room for grace. And that is a scary place to be. Read verses 31 and 32 out loud on your notes with me. It says, My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we have to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is fam. In verse 31, the father tells him what his problem is. You don't know my heart, son. You never have. Even though you've been with me this whole time, you've done all the right things, you've never developed a relationship with me. He was as far away from his father as his brother was, and then he misses out. He's missed out all these years on the party that was always his to have. He never experienced mercy because he didn't understand that he needed it. I love how the father says, we had to celebrate and rejoice. Like, there's no other option here, dude. Your brother was as good as dead. And he has been resurrected into life. And I'm inviting you to join the party. So much so, I'm going to come out of the party in order to meet you here. So what do you say, son? And in verse 33, we read, oh, wait a minute. There is no verse 33. We never actually get to see what the older son decides. Does he join the party? Or does he remain outside, cold-hearted and joyless? We aren't told. Of course, we're not told because Jesus is the greatest teacher ever, yeah? And he leaves his audience with this question that's just dangling there for us to answer. If you're on your notes, what kind of God do I believe in? What kind of God do I believe in? Pharisees, teachers of the law, what kind of God do you believe in? Tax collectors, sinners, what kind of God do you believe in? Is it the father God of the prodigal son? If you're on your notes, a God of love? Or is it the taskmaster God of religion who operates on a you-get-what-you-deserve basis? You just get what you deserve. Well, the Pharisees, they thought they knew God. And their God was a lot more about getting what you deserve and this story is really for them. What Jesus wants them to understand is that not even they are righteous before God. That they need mercy just as much as these tax collectors and sinners. Like the younger son, they too deserve death. But here's the good news of the gospel. Even for them, even for Pharisees, praise God, huh? By faith in Christ, none of us get what we deserve. 
By faith in Christ, we get life, not death. We get mercy, not justice. Thank goodness. We get freedom, not slavery. We get love, not judgment. We get the party, not the pigsty. We get the father, not dead religion. We get home. Home, not the far country. Though we are lost, we can be found. I never finished my story in the beginning. So there were my parents, worried to death in the kitchen. People all over our neighborhood looking everywhere for me. When all of a sudden, they hear this clang in one of the cabinets. (laughs) My mom goes and opens up the cabinet, and there I am with Blanky taking my nap. (laughs) Apparently, my crib wasn't good enough for me. Well, all of a sudden, the next thing I know, right, I'm swept up into this amazing embrace. I'm being hugged, and I'm kissed, and they're crying, and they're laughing, and I have no clue what's going on, but I'm loving it. But for them, I had been lost, and I was now found, and that was reason to celebrate. What about you? Whether you're the older son or the younger son, do you know that God is waiting for you with open arms? Though you may be lost, you can be found. That you can come home again and again and again. If you're following on your notes, the only question I would leave us with is, am I ready to come home? Whether for the first time or maybe for the thousandth time, am I ready to come home to the Father's embrace today? Will you bow with me and pray? Father, I don't even know what to say. Thank you for revealing your heart to us. Thank you for sending Jesus, not just to talk about who you are, but to actually show us. Thank you that you are a God of compassion and mercy and love. And yes, you are also a God of justice. But you have taken what we deserve upon yourself. You have taken our shame and our stench and our sin so that we may be adopted into your family. How else can we respond but in awe and worship and praise? We're going to spend just a moment now in silence just to allow God's word to sink into our hearts. Sometimes it's easy to hear it in one ear and let it go out the other and move on with our day. But we want to practice the discipline of listening. And I'm going to be willing to bet that the Father would love to speak to your heart right now about something. Maybe you're that younger son and you've just been wondering, will he really receive me back? Listen to his good news to you this morning. Or maybe you recognize, as I have this week, that sometimes the spirit of that older son can creep into my heart. And we just need to be reminded that we too are not getting what we deserve. So let's just spend some time allowing this to soak in.